So we are going to talk about singleness tonight. Singleness. Uh, I have a book at home in my library with this wonderful title, Singleness, The Gift No One Wants. <laughs> and um, I actually think people talk a little more balanced about singleness, at least in kind of Bible-believing churches now than when I was your age. Uh, I think for sure that that's the case. I think even um, in the last 10, 15 years, more people have seen some of the implications and problems of basically teaching that singleness is like plan B for the Christian life. Um, you know, I wasn't married until I was 33 years old. Um, and I was the only single pastor at a very large church, maybe 3,000 people, where the senior pastor, God bless him, uh, regularly asked people from the pulpit, he would say things like, well, no revival has come when Kevin Twitt takes a wife. Or he'll just, something would pop in his head and he'd say something like, would you all pray that Kevin would, would be able to take a wife? And then at my ordination service, where I'm basically being installed as the college pastor at that church, um, Virtually every person that got up to take part in the ceremony said something about uh, my future wife. And my good friend Rick Punkashar, again, God bless him, um, literally invited all the single ladies up to the piano after the service to meet me. Now, the, the irony, of course, is that Wendy was there. And she didn't come up front afterwards. And she was still a college student. Yeah. Later, when she became a volunteer leader, you know, we got to know each other and then we started dating. Anyway, um, it can be kind of, kind of embarrassing. Even well-meaning people can say stupid stuff about these sorts of things. I remember one of my favorite professors in seminary, this guy, Dr. Van Groningen, he's passed on now. He was ancient when he was my professor in the 90s. And um, this massive, like, hands, like, he was just this old Dutch farmer guy. Um, and he was awesome. And I remember um, soon after I graduated seminary that I came, uh, he came down to Christ Community in Franklin, down from St. Louis, to give a talk to the singles class. And I remember, you know, spending a little time with him. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to really, you know, give it to the singles and tell them they need to, you know, kind of get married. And I was like, you know, Dr. Van Groningen? If somebody's in their 30s and they're still married, there's probably a story there. And, and I don't think that all they need is just a kick in the butt. Is that what I said? Oh, yeah, if they're, if, yeah, yeah, yes. If they're, if they're in their 30s and they're still single, there's probably a story there. And, and I think sometimes well-meaning people say stupid stuff. Now, the funny thing is, um, when we got married, he actually gave me a copy of his book um, that he inscribed to Wendy and I. The problem is he signed it to Kevin and Nancy. <laughs> so I'm always waiting for like maybe three generations from now, like somebody inherits that book and wonders what the story is. <laughs> Who was Nancy and what happened to her? But anyway, all right. So what I, what I guess I'm saying is uh, I've been there. I've been there, right? And the, what the Bible says, which the church seems to just have a difficult time saying, is that singleness and marriage are both good things. And yet it's hard to commend both of them as biblical callings, because as soon as you commend marriage, and we'll do a couple talks in this series on marriage, then people think, well, you're kind of saying that singleness isn't as good. Or if you talk about singleness, people say, well, don't you think marriage is a good calling? Yes. That's the main point tonight. They're both biblical callings. And to understand what the Bible has to say requires some nuance. Now, it doesn't help that a whole huge segment of the Christian church, namely the Roman Catholic Church, has said that singleness is a vocation required for those who would be totally devoted to God, namely priests and nuns. That doesn't help. That doesn't help because that even kind of bleeds over into the way Protestants think about this as well. A lot of Protestants, I think, even Bible-believing Christians basically see singleness as God's plan B rather than a valid plan A. 
And this is in spite of the fact that Jesus and Paul were both single. Like you have to put that into your theological pipe and smoke it when you're talking about this issue. Because Jesus fully imaged God as a single man. He fully imaged God as a single man. The Bible teaches that marriage and singleness are good choices based on giftedness and calling. But we're gonna look at this passage, which has contributed some, I think, to the confusion, um, and hopefully be able to make some sense of it here tonight. If you wanna follow along, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm actually reading the NIV translation. So if you're on a Bible on your phone, you could look at the NIV. Um, and if you have the paper, well, then you're looking at the same thing I am. So this is God's word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So already you get clued in. Paul is now in this section of 1 Corinthians responding to a letter that they wrote him, a letter that we don't have. So we're having to kind of speculate on what it was that they wrote him. But he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally in the Greek it says, literally it's not good to touch a woman. But in the first century, everybody agrees that that was a euphemism for sex, touch. But he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is some pretty countercultural stuff that Paul's laying down here. I hope you get that. Even in the first century it was, as I'm going to explain. Do not deprive one another. He means from sex in your marriage. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Jump down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Jump down to verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, these are engaged, though it was a little stronger than engagement. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. See, I told you there was all kinds of weird stuff in this section, but I think we can make some sense of it. Um, I'll just say this because I don't think it's in my outline later and I wanna make sure. When Paul says about this, I have no command from the Lord, I speak, not the Lord, Maybe you've been kind of puzzled over that. Is Paul distinguishing himself or distancing himself from apostolic authority? And the answer is no. In the New Testament, whenever 
the Lord is referred to. Do you know who that means? It always means Jesus. I know when we pray and we pray Lord, generally Christians today are referring to the Father when they say Lord. But in the New Testament, the way that the apostles and the writers of scripture speak, Lord means Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is, I don't have the words of Jesus on this one, but what I write to you has authority. And he actually goes into great lengths in this letter about his apostolic authority. So Paul is not saying, I don't write scripture, which should be understood to be the word of the Lord. I'm just not quoting Jesus. But on the other issues, I can quote Jesus because we have his very words on some of the questions. That's the point there. Okay, let me pray and then we'll start trying to, to dig into this and into this topic. Lord, thank you for your word. Even though, um, as the Apostle Peter says, sometimes Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And I'm always comforted by that. <laughs> because sometimes it is hard to understand. Sometimes it's easy to understand and that's the trouble because it's hard to receive. We pray, Lord, whatever the situation, you'd send your spirit to help us, to humble us, but also to give us insight and clarity that we might do your will and honor you and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so the Bible teaches that marriage and singleness are good choices based on calling. He says that in verse 17. Let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule. See, there he's invoking his authority as an apostle. This is my rule I lay down in all the churches. And then he goes through and explains more about it. But that's kind of the big picture here. So then you've got to go back at verse one and say, okay, what the heck is he saying here? Because the question you have to ask is, is it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What is that? And here, let me help you here. I think, and this is becoming the growing consensus among Bible scholars, that when Paul uses that phrase, those aren't his words, he's quoting a slogan of the Corinthians. In other words, they've written to him and said, we think it's good for people not to have sex. That actually fits the context of Corinth. Corinth was actually a place where there was all kinds of sexual immorality. Even in the church in Corinth, they were having orgies break out at church during their love feasts. It was crazy. And they thought because they had such incredible spiritual gifts, signs and wonders, that it didn't matter how they lived because God was obviously blessing them in huge ways. So things are really screwed up in Corinth. But there is a whole stream of teaching, particularly coming from Greek philosophy, which is influencing the church in Corinth, it seems, that you are better off to never have any kind of physical, what we might call worldly pleasure. And so the Corinthians have written to Paul saying, we think it's good for a man never to touch a woman. To which Paul says, well, yes and no. As a matter of fact, all through 1 Corinthians, he basically answers all of their kind of one-size-fits-all sort of slogans with, well, it depends on the context, it depends on the situation, depends on lots of different things. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, well, I guess it is good to not touch a woman if you are single and have the gift of singleness and also because of the present distress which we're not quite sure what that is, is that have something to do with the persecution um, and the way that that would cause more distress if you were married than if you were single. It's hard to know exactly, but there are several reasons why Paul says, yes, that might be a good, valid decision and a good, valid way to live. And I'll talk more about that as we go into this. But he also, in 1 Timothy chapter four, says it's a doctrine of demons. The same Apostle Paul says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage. So is Paul teaching people to abstain from marriage here? Like that's a higher spiritual calling? I don't think so. I think he's quoting the Corinthians and then responding to it with more nuance. I think of it this way. 
Bumper sticker theology is usually bad theology. If it can fit on a t-shirt or it can fit on a bumper sticker, uh, it probably lacks nuance. And the way to wrestle with scripture is to see everything that scripture has to say about this. So don't just go quoting 1 Corinthians 7.1 and be like, I'm never going to marry and I'm spiritually superior to you because of that. That's not true. Paul says, well, there may be contexts in which that is a good decision, but it's not one size fits all. And he's trying to work with that kind of nuanced view all through this passage. Why do I take this view? Again, verse one says about the matters you wrote. So he's obviously in this section responding to things that were written. Like I said, it contradicts what he says in 1 Timothy 4. And some translations say it's good not to marry. I can't remember what the ESV says, not good to marry, but it doesn't say marry in the Greek. It says touch a woman. And so a lot of people are like, well, you know, we know that the Bible says that sex isn't a bad thing. So maybe he's referring to marriage and then they're trying to figure out, well, not good to marry means not as good. But that, all of that, you don't need to come up with all that convoluted stuff if you just understand that he is quoting them. The challenge is Greek does not use punctuation, yeah. uh, right? And the earliest ways that they wrote, yeah, some of you are in Greek, so you've learned this, right? Greek doesn't use punctuation. And the earliest Greek manuscripts have all the letters scrunched together. They don't even have breaks between the words because the stuff they were writing on was so valuable that they wanted to use every little bit of space they had. So where the word breakups are and the punctuation, it's gotta be something the translators wrestle with. So that's part of why this is a challenging thing to understand. But uh, Thistleton, Anthony Thistleton, whose commentary on 1 Corinthians is fabulous, says this, without doubt, without doubt, the allusion to abstinence from physical intimacy in marriage comes not from Paul, but from Corinth. They're the ones who are saying that. And Paul doesn't say, no, you're completely wrong, but he also doesn't agree with them, right? So when we take verse one as a quote of the Corinthians, then you see that what's going on is they believe that abstaining from sex, even in marriage, is a more spiritual way to live. And there have been other Christians throughout history that have taught this. Saint Augustine, as much as he loved so many things he said, was very unhelpful on this point. He said, and the Catholic Church followed this in many ways for a long time, that Mar like marriage and sex are necessary for the propagation of the human race, but if you enjoy sex, you've sinned, right? Now, a lot of people think the Puritans were uptight about sex. Actually, compared to the Catholic teaching of those days, they were refreshingly, wonderfully um, <laughs> for sex. They really were. As a matter of fact, this will probably blow your mind if you um, have an image of what the Puritans were like. There was a church in New England that the wife came to the elders because the husband wasn't having enough sex with her and they disciplined the husband for not having enough sex. Not, all, not only that, but of course you even see in the Old Testament Mosaic law that when a man was married, he was supposed to stay home from going to war. Why? It says for the good of his wife, for her enjoyment. So the, the Bible is very pro-sex and the Christians that have read it better have, have understood that, okay? Um, and this is why then Paul says, well, there can be a season, like you look at verse five, he's like, okay, there can be a time when you can deprive one another, but don't do it just for the heck of it. It means, you, like, this is an amazing thing. When you think, remember how I started the first week? One of the challenges in talking about relationships is does God have the right to tell you what to do with your body and with your relationships? And for most modern people, even Christians, that seems like a big ask. And the starting point for understanding Christian ethics is what Paul says, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore, what does he say? Honor God with your body. The, the direct implication of how you live with your body is that you have been bought with a price and you're not your own. That's of course not how we think about all these things. We, when you read the woman's body does not belong to her, you're, some of you were like ready to probably like, you know, punch me or throw something. But then he says it about the husband, and you're like, okay, I don't know if that makes it better. It's still a weird thing to say in our day and age, right? 
But what Paul says, and this is amazing, listen to what he's saying here. A married couple cannot decide to quit having sex. They can't. Isn't that amazing? God says married couples are not allowed to just stop having sex. Now, of course, there are times when that needs to happen, right? But he's not saying, even if the two of you agree, God says that the covenant cement that sex is, is important in your marriage. And so, yes, you can stop having sex, but only for a season to devote yourself to prayer, but you can't do that forever. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable thing. We'll talk more about that when we talk about marriage. But the reason it's even countercultural in the first century is because in the Roman world, marriage was seen as a relationship of duty and not one of enjoyment and intimacy. Uh, most, most married men married to propagate their lineage and for making sure their property could be inherited. And if they didn't have children that they thought were trustworthy, they could disinherit their own natural born children and they could adopt someone to be their heir, usually somebody who was already an adult, so they made sure that they were trustworthy. And they had concubines on the side. Nobody in the Roman world expected you to get all of your sexual satisfaction from your spouse. And everybody in the Roman world would have expected Paul to say to the wives, your body belongs to your husband. As a matter of fact, if somebody of an upper class demanded sex from somebody of a lower class, that person had to, had to comply. The, 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 the first person to actually enact laws that protected your right to have sex with who you chose was a Christian emperor, and it wasn't until about the fourth or fifth century. So this is a world in which, of course, the wife's body belongs to her husband, but you see what Paul says? The husband's body belongs to the wife. Nobody would say that in the first century. That's crazy, but it also is probably one of the reasons that so many women and slaves were attracted to Christianity. Larry Hurtado, um, great um, church historian who passed away um, not that long ago, in his remarkable little book, short little book, but I, I highly recommend it. It's got a long title, it's like only a scholar would title a book. Um, Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? That's the name of the book. It doesn't mark it well, I suppose, but you do get an idea of what it's about. But he basically says there is no social advantage, there's no economic advantage, there's no advantage whatsoever to become a Christian in the first three centuries. If anything, it hurt you in every way. And yet, why did so many women and slaves go to Christianity that many early, Christian, many early critics of Christianity said the problem with Christianity is it's a religion for women and slaves? But this is part of why women understood that they were given dignity and honor that nowhere else in that world they were given. And they, they understood something that we need to understand again today. It was one of the things that made Christianity remarkable and attractive was its teaching on sex. Isn't that remarkable? Because today it's one of the things that people think is the most backwards about Christianity and one of the reasons that we're not sure that it should even be given a fair hearing anymore. But I'm gonna hopefully have a friend of mine speak uh, to sex more particularly later in this series. So, um, you know, what Paul does say is there are some advantages to singleness, provided you're gifted for it in light of certain conditions, right? In some ways, being single does have certain advantages. Now, when I started doing RUF, I was single. Then I was married. Then I was married with one kid, two kids, three kids, right? There were pros and cons as far as ministry to every stage. There really were. Like the other night, I guess it was last night, uh, we had to move uh, the guy's small group Bible study to um, Harper and Oliver and Evans and Jack's place. And as I was walking back to my car, like 9.30 at night, I was like, oh, I remember when I used to hang out late night and do Bible study dorms in the dorms. Late night, and I'd be out till 11, 12 o'clock at night just hanging out. I didn't do that once we got married. Plus, we lived in Franklin, Tennessee, which is like 30 minutes away, right? And then when I had kids, 
that definitely changes like how much time I can be around, right? But also, you guys get to be in our house. Believe me, if I wasn't married, you wouldn't want to be in our house. <laughs> At least my house, it would just be books and records everywhere and no bit of hospitality, I guarantee you. Um, and certainly nothing you'd really want to ever eat. Um, though I could still order pizza, I suppose. Um, so there are all kinds of pros and cons, certain things you can do, certain things that are harder to do. That's just life, that's just reality. But again, I hope you see that Paul's teaching is way ahead of its time. When Paul teaches that both men and women have rights and responsibilities in marriage, like no one else is saying that, right? Because again, in most ancient cultures, women in marriage were regarded as property without rights. All right, how about verse eight and nine, where he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So is he telling these poor widows that they shouldn't get remarried? I think here's what you need to understand. In the first century, women would have had tremendous pressure to marry again right away. And what Paul is saying is, you actually don't have to do that. You don't have to get married right away. You can stay single if you want. You have that freedom. Again, there was tremendous pressure on men and women to remarry after being widowed within a year and after divorce within six months because of societal pressures, because it threw your property and who would acquire it into um, kind of jeopardy, into limbo. The pressure to have at least three children, the use of marriage to enhance social status, and the low life expectancy of women, 20 to 30 years at this time, made it very difficult for a woman to say, no, I don't think I want to get remarried. And Paul says, you have that right. Again, that's remarkable. It's different, difficult, I think, for us to comprehend what that pressure's like, unless you've been the only single pastor at a big church for a while. What a freedom that is, right? But here's the key to understanding what he's saying here, and then we'll draw out some practical implications for how we live today as single people. The, the section at the very end, verses 27 through the end, is it, kind of strange, right? Uh, he's basically saying, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. But this is what I mean. Look at verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. So what he's saying here now is in light of the expectation of the kingdom of God that's coming and the relative shortness and the relative urgency to seek first the kingdom. And that really, I think, is the way to understand this passage. He's not saying that you should never mourn. I hope you understand that. But he's saying those who mourn should live as though they were not mourning. In other words, the kingdom of God, in a sense, relativizes everything. Everything that you think of is ultimate actually has to be understood in relationship to the thing that is actually ultimate, which is the kingdom of God. And on this, Paul does have the words of Jesus. Because he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. And he talks in that context there in the Sermon on the Mount. He says the pagans run after all these things. What shall we eat? Where shall we live? Who will we marry? All those sorts of things. They're not bad. And, and Paul or Jesus even says, your heavenly father knows you need them. So he doesn't shame us, but he says, don't live like pagans consumed with that. Seek first the kingdom of God and trust me. Does that mean that you can get married? Yes, absolutely. And you're not sinning if you do. Does that mean you can stay single and not married? Yes, and you're not singing, sinning if you do. Because ultimately, what serves the kingdom of God advancing? That was one of the questions that I had to wrestle with. Uh, here I am 30 some years old, and I've got people encouraged me to get married, but there are some things about being single that are very effective for the kingdom of God. And yet at some point I decided, and I really think I was led to, to realize that Wendy and I were better together as a team than we were apart. But it had to do with the kingdom of God. Now I can't tell you exactly why, but I will tell you this, like, gosh, and Wendy could tell you stories, um, all I can tell you is I made people cry a lot more <laughs> back before my wife would rebuke me uh, afterwards. And um, yeah, and emotional IQ, oh my goodness. 
And not that I have much of it now, but I'm just telling you, I'm a different person because of being married. I'm still kind of, kind of a butthole sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I think I heard somebody say, marriage is a mirror. And the problem is we don't always want a mirror, right? But moving forward toward that is a way of saying, Lord, I'm going to trust that this is good for me and that you're going to use this. All right. So uh, all this kind of stuff basically boils down to this. Does God have a right to call you to be single? Is that even a possibility? And if it's not even a possibility, why? I think that's a question every one of us should ponder. Does he have a right to call you to be married? And again, I don't just assume that everybody wants to be married. Whenever I do a wedding, one of the things I always say is the good news today, as we're about to do this wedding, is that marriage is a signpost pointing to heaven. It's not heaven itself. That's good news for people who aren't married and want to be. It's good news for people who are married and don't want to be. It's good news for people who uh, are no longer married and wish they were. Marriage is a signpost, but so is singleness. Because to be single for God's glory or to be married for God's glory requires radical trust in his good purposes and his coming kingdom. And that's the real question. Whose kingdom will determine these kinds of questions? So a couple practical wisdom, miscellaneous manners as we go through this. Remember that Jesus fully imaged God as a single person Paul was a single person, though we believe he was probably married because he couldn't have been a member of the Sanhedrin without being married, the Jewish ruling council. But we have no idea if his wife died or if she left him when he became a Christian. We don't know. All we know is that he's single at this point and says that he's gifted for it and is called to it. And he seems to enjoy it and even desire for other people to be able to enjoy it as he does. That's fascinating, you know? And I think it actually helps us to kind of understand some of like, how do you even know if you're called to this? And I'll talk about that in a minute. All right, so here's the second point. Singleness and marriage are both ways to show the world that Jesus is real and that having him in your life makes a difference because both callings are difficult. They really are. The grass always seems greener on the other side Though probably most of you have been around enough miserably married people that the grass isn't perfectly greener. As a matter of fact, some of you can't imagine being married because of what you've seen. Just like some of you can't imagine not being married because of the loneliness or whatever um, you've seen, right? And the question is, will we let those stories and that pain determine this issue? I pray not. I pray that whatever way God calls you, it wouldn't be because of pain leading you, but because the kingdom of God calling you to something richer, countercultural, as a way to show, I believe the kingdom of God is coming that makes a difference, right? But to do that, the church has to live up both callings as glorious ways to advance the kingdom. And I get really frustrated when I hear people say, you know, marriage is the foundation for our society. Like, really? Jesus is the cornerstone, as I read it. I don't read anywhere in the Bible where it says that. And it devalues singleness as a valid calling, but the church shouldn't do that. Marriage and singleness are both held up as valid callings and ways to live. And there have been some famous Christians who've made some bad decisions, I think, about this. One of my best examples I know is a guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a tremendous um, evangelist. It, he's not all perfect. There were some, definitely some dark things about his life, particularly using slaves to raise money for the orphanage. It was kind of just a convoluted thing. But the thing I'm talking about right now is he saw Jonathan Edwards and his wife, spent time with them, and thought marriage would be really great. I could be so much more effective if I had a wife like Sarah Edwards. So he gets married, and then you know what? He never was home, because he kept preaching all the time. He kind of wanted to be married in a sense, maybe even thought it was better, but he didn't actually adjust his life at all. 
Don't want to do that. Singleness, Paul says, is a gift, not a curse. Now, I will post this whole article for you, but I'm going to read you some excerpts from one of the greatest articles I know by my friend Paige Brown. She was Paige Benton when she wrote this. Yeah, some of y'all know her. Yeah, you've read it? Yeah. Mm. She wrote this back when she was um, RUF staff at Vanderbilt and still single. She's married now with kids and teaches over at West End all the time. That's what Paige is excited about because you can hear her. Ask Wendy about how you can listen to her talking through James. She's unbelievable. Um, Anyway, here's what she says. Much has been written in Christian circles about singleness. The objective is usually either to chide the marriage population for their misunderstanding and segregationism or to empathize with the unmarried population as they bear the cross of plan B for the Christian life. Bolstered only by the consolation prizes of innumerable sermons on 1 Corinthians 7 and the fact that you can cut your toenails in bed. Yet singles, like all believers, need scriptural critique and instruction seasoned by sober grace, not condolences and putt-putt accompanied with pious platitudes. Every problem is a theological problem, and the habitual discontent of us singles is no exception. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. I'm going to quote her a little bit here later. But let me ask this question. How do you know if you're called to be single? A couple thoughts on this. Paul says in verse 17 that singleness is a gift. It's a gift. Which suggests that you will enjoy it. Again, not in keeping with that book, Singleness, the Gift Nobody Wants. Really misses the point. Paul is gifted for singleness and he thinks it's great. He enjoys it because he sees the value of singleness for advancing the kingdom. But notice this, Paul is not boasting in his singleness because it's a gift, not an achievement. He's not saying, look at me, I'm able to be single, and I wish that you were like me, a super Christian. There's no spiritual elitism to the way he thinks about his singleness. He sees the value of singleness for advancing the kingdom. He does not see it as like a higher level Christian experience. Tim Keller suggests, suggests, it's speculation, but it's worth pointing out, suggests that people with this gift of singleness must have a low level need for romantic relationships. Although, I will say to caution you, there can be a lot of reasons why you feel like you have a low level need. And not all of them are actually healthy, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, The other thing to think about singleness is the gift may not be permanent. I mean, I was called to be single for 33 years, okay? Like, to decide probably at this stage in your life might be a little presumptuous, right? Some of us are called to be single by God's providence. Um, and, And for many people, singleness is out of their control for various reasons. Um, And so you can be gifted for singleness for a season. Like I said, Paul was most likely married before he wrote 1 Corinthians. But now he says that he's gifted, sees his singleness as a gift. But it wasn't always that way for him, right? So before deciding that you have the gift of singleness, I think you should examine your hearts for why you might have maybe a lack of desire to date or marry. And and I'll just throw a couple possibilities out there just for you to consider. Tim Keller says it may be because you have such a commitment to independence that while you may be lonely, and I would say this was part of my, I mean, I I would say this was one of the issues with me. The other was I was just freaking afraid. You know, when I tell people that Wendy was the first girl I dated or, or kissed, it's not out of holiness. It was really out of fear, like really. But also a sense of, man, if you're like single into your 30s, you get pretty set in your ways, you know? And, um, and we've been dealing with that our whole married life, <laughs> actually. 
Um, but you know, but the way Tim Keller says, some people are so delighted to not have to answer to anybody that they enjoy singleness and can even like push down even like maybe there are times when I wish I did have somebody. Um, I don't know if you'll like this or not. John Hyatt is one of my absolute favorite songwriters. Maybe you don't even know his music, but I'll just tell you this. He's one of the only people to have both Willie Nelson and Bob Dylan cover his songs. Not many songwriters can say that, okay? Um, he's got this amazing song. It's a really funny song called Ethelene about this woman that he was married to and now she's disappeared. Um, and as he's reflecting on it, he says this. Now some men will drive to the edges of nowhere so they can take a peek at the great abyss. Some men avoid love like it was the plague or something so they can leave the seat down when they piss. <laughs> that's that's a, a, a clever way of saying some people just don't like their routine upset. They don't wanna change anything. And the best way to make sure that happens is to stay disconnected from other people in a real way. But it also may be because of deep pain and hurt. You may have just killed your hope and desires because you can't stand to live with unfulfilled longings or you can't stand to feel things after what you've been through, right? That is a real thing. And if, and if that's what you suspect, I pray that you would talk to somebody about it because that stuff just festers in the dark and really needs to come to the light. You need to find somebody that you can begin to talk to about that. It may be, another possibility, that you're deeply selfish and irresponsible and you don't want to repent. I, I would say I need to face that when I look back at my own life. The way Paige Benton says it is singleness can be a mere euphemism for self-absorption. Now is the you time. No wife to support, no husband to pamper. Well then, by all means, join three different golf courses, get a weekly pedicure, raise emus, subscribe to People Magazine. Singleness is never carte blanche for selfishness. A spouse is not a sufficient countermeasure for self. The gospel is the only antidote for egocentricity. Christ did not come simply to save us from our sins. He came to save us from ourselves, and he most often rescues us from us through relationships, all kinds of relationships, not just marriage. And then there are some who are single because of the cost of the kingdom. And there's different versions of this. I think about people who are believers in countries where there are very few believers. And if they are to obey Paul's command to only marry in the Lord, maybe there aren't people that are eligible to be married to. And thus their calling to serve Christ and obey him is going to lead them to singleness. That's true. I've got other friends who their belief in what the Bible calls them to do with their sexuality, they would say, I'm not called to be married. I know people have different views on that, but there are people that are embracing singleness out of a desire and their understanding of what it means to honor God. And um, I think that's also, you know, one of the things that's made even that seem like a more difficult and kind of crazy idea is again, because the church has been so screwed up for so long on teaching about singleness as a valid calling. And it's part of the, this kind of, some of the baggage of that is that people can't actually even ponder a life without marriage. So my friend uh, Greg Johnson says, I can live without sex, I can't live without love. But there are lots of ways to receive love and to give love in covenant relationships, right? So um, I, I remember, you know, we sang that song, we just sang that song, Jesus, I'm a cross of taken. And I remember there was a, a conference um, a conference called Revoice that was up in St. Louis a few years ago. And um, I, I was told that they were gonna sing. So this is a conference for people who are committed or at least believe that the biblical call for their sexuality is marriage between a man or woman or celibacy. That, that, that there's people who've made that decision, right? And um, if you don't know anybody, it's, it's worth investigating, I think, and hearing more of that perspective because it's maybe not something you've ever heard of before, but I, I basically was told they were gonna sing that, that, that hymn, and I thought, wow, I wanna be there in a room with a thousand people who said no to sex to say yes to Jesus, and sing Jesus on my cross have taken. And you know, we actually did a hymn sing at the Ryman Auditorium in 2010, was it, 2011? 
2010. And that was amazing, all right? One of the highlights of my life, absolutely, to sing that song. But honestly, to be in that room at Revoice with that song being sung was way more powerful and something I'll never forget. I don't know what God's calling will be for you. Again, is God big enough to be able to ask you to be married or to ask you to be single? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road on all of this stuff. But beware, there are some common theological um, errors that accompany singleness. And let me give you a couple of them the way Paige Brown says it. These are so good. She says, work theology is at the heart of attempts to explain singleness. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life as though God's blessings are ever earned by your contentment. I think that's one of the most insidious lies that I hear people spout all the time, that God won't bring me a relationship till I'm content with my singleness. Where? Like relationships are like a reward for you being content with singleness? I, I don't read that in the Bible anywhere. You're too picky. She's heard this, I'm sure, from well-meaning old ladies in her church. You're too picky as though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. Quote, as a single person, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work, as though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. And then before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. There's a lot of crap theology out there regarding singleness, which really is about spirituality. And a lot of it has to do with telling you that longings are kind of a little suspect because they probably don't have much to do with God. Well, she says, accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on celebration of the life he has given. She says, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. Now that's faith in the kingdom of God. And I aspire to that. So how do we glorify God as a single person? First thing is even the way we talk about it, Christian single or single Christian, I think makes a difference. Singleness is not the most important thing about you that you're God's adopted child in union with him, married to him, part of the bride of Christ. You know, women have to begin to embrace what does it mean to be a son of God? Because sons in the Roman law had security that daughters never could have. And guys, you need to begin to understand what does it mean to be part of the bride of Christ. So nobody gets to fully try to just try to understand relationship with God solely through even their human relationships or even the way they understand their gender. It's bigger than even that. But singleness is not the defining factor in who you are and how you're called to live. Um, What do we do then? There probably are, Tim Keller, I heard him say this once, and he's dealing at a church in New York where you've got lots of, you know, single people like in their 30s, 40s even, because it's New York City, right? He suggested periodic um, seeking for maybe somebody. I thought this was interesting because I know sometimes there have been times when I felt like um, I was just obsessed with it and other times when I'm like, nah, I'm just going to kind of fill my life up with all kinds of other things and, and not. And I was glad that some people got in my face and said, Kevin, we think you've basically created a life where your selfishness isn't being challenged and maybe you should think about that. That was helpful. It was actually helpful. Well, I actually got snowed in at, the, at this couple's house, and they got in my face, and I couldn't get away. Um, but it's helpful. Now, it still took almost a year for me to even ponder who are some of the women that providentially God has brought into my life uh, that I know. And I was like, I think I'd really like to ask out Wendy Morgan. And it's still what took me another three or four months before I got up the nerve, you know. But hey, baby steps, right? Uh, Just a couple more things, then we'll close. Singleness does not exempt you from having to love sacrificially. Oh, I I passed this one, but I have to say this. There are some seasons when you probably shouldn't be seeking somebody to date or seeking somebody to marry, particularly when you're in a crisis. 
It's a, it's a prime time when false intimacy can build around the crisis. And um, just be careful, be careful of that. Singleness is not just a stage of life where you're waiting to serve God, it's a time to serve God. That's why I love that line in the hymn we sang, Jesus on my cross, joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. So whether you're dating somebody or not, whether you're single or married, whether you're you know, graduating and now you can get on with your real life or you're still in college, doesn't matter, there's something for you to do and to bear for God and for his kingdom. There's joy to find in every station of life, something to do for him, something to bear for him. And be sensitive, now you guys aren't that old yet, but the older you get, the more serious things get. When you get out of college, um, man, casual dating can really hurt people. Um, you know, Wendy and I, we dated four months before we got engaged, and that seems crazy, but I knew her pretty well after a year of like, you know, getting to know her. And when you're out of college, there are kind of less things to kind of hold you back from just kind of moving forward on things. And you need to understand that and be a good steward of that in how you deal with relationships. But uh, last thing, marriage is not a cure for loneliness. Matter of fact, being in a bad marriage, being disconnected in marriage is maybe even worse. But loneliness can be a doorway into feeling what Jesus felt for us by leaving his father and coming to die. And let me end with that and preach that at you because that sometimes there are things that we would do anything to avoid feeling. And given a choice between feeling loneliness and disobeying God, we would choose disobeying God. And here's what you need to understand. The loneliness that may be accompanying your life right now is actually a way for you to emotionally connect with what it felt like Jesus to be Jesus on this earth. To be Jesus meant when he asked his friends, just stay awake and pray with me, they fell asleep. He woke them up and asked them again, pleaded with them, they fell asleep again. And then in his moment, his hour of need, they all scattered. They all scattered, right? Denied they even knew him, some of them. Jesus took a loneliness like he had never experienced. And you know this because being beaten, the crown of thorns, none of those things caused Jesus to cry out. What caused him to cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt loneliness where he had only known perfect love with his father for the first time. It's why in contemplating that this is what he was heading towards, it says that his sweat was like great drops of blood. And he prayed, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. What you need to know in your singleness is that Jesus gets it and he didn't have to. If it wasn't for his love for us, he would never have left heaven. He never would have experienced firsthand relationship rupture like we can only imagine, but he did it because he would rather die than live without us. And that's what you need to be remembering as you think about God's kingdom and what he might be able to call you to for his glory. Let's pray.